0: Welcome to the podcast where we track down Australian war veterans, have a chat with them, and hear their stories. I'm Alex Lloyd, and this is Life on the Line.
1: They were building positions in there at By the time anyone got to us, I think it was chaos. the weather was so bad there would I be nobody left. And the next thing I hear was alarms
0: screaming. We very, very the soldiers didn't want
1: to go into the ambushes, wow. so they'd wow. send nice. the kids in first. So he was, was sent in first into an ambush and he got shot in the stomach. It was very hard for me, very hard for my family. And the plane I'm Proud I'm of the crew, proud Just of like what I've achieved and what I'm doing. To volunteer for service was in effect to put your life on the line
0: today on life on the line i spoke with dr carl james senior historian at the australian war memorial on anzac day 2017 carl gave a speech about the enduring resonance of gallipoli and kokoda to the australian public with anzac day around the corner this year it felt like the perfect time to talk with carl about these pillars of australian military history I'm Alex Lloyd, and I'm at the Australian War Memorial speaking with Dr. Carl James. It's your second appearance on Life on the Line, Carl, so welcome back to the podcast.
1: Thanks for having me, Alex. You guys have done um, an amazing job with the podcast, and it's been really exciting to listen to.
0: Thanks, Carl. Gallipoli and Kokoda are so intimately associated with the Australian national character. Focusing on Gallipoli for the moment, what was it about the troops on the shore that fateful morning that would lead to them becoming, in a sense, the definition of our Australian values?
1: I think in many ways it's the it's the first big test. It's described as the first great test of Australian manhood. It's the first time Australian forces deploy on a major military operation. And you have this sense, it's very old fashioned today, by today's standards, but this notion that a nation needed to be blooded. You know, it needed to test itself in battle and in combat. Now, Australian, what we would call us, what we would now call Australians, um, certainly people who lived in Australia, uh, have been fighting in all of the empire's wars, it certainly seems. Uh, We know people from the colonies went and served in the British army and fought at Waterloo. We also know that Waterloo veterans came to Australia from the 1860s, People in the colonies went to fight in, in New Zealand during the Maori Wars and later on once you formed colonial units the Boer War, uh, the Box Rebellion, the Boer War. So we do have a sense of sending our men overseas to fight, whether or not they themselves would have identified as being Australian um, in the 1890s or 1899 or around 1900. Kind of questionable, I think, a little bit arguable. But anyway, so Australian well, soldiers have left Australian shores to fight to overseas. But with the First World War, with and especially with Gallipoli, this is our first major test, big battle, big operation, and more Australians are killed on those first couple of days at the landing at Anzac than than had been killed in all of our previous colonial conflicts. So uh, it was the, the scale, the scope, the sense too of an, an element of uh, excitement. So the press reports when they did filter back to Australia, of this landing in this place called Gallipoli, which no one had ever heard of beforehand, um, was quite exciting. And you had things such as Ashmead Bartlett's famous dispatches where he talks about this race of athletes scaling ashores and men going ahead under fire. So all those values of bravery, mateship, courage, endurance, it was the values that were really talked up what Australians were displaying on the battlefield at Gallipoli on the peninsula. And... It's those qualities which I think we all like to think about ourselves, um, And so that's part of the the basis for it too. And I think as the war went on and we moved to the Western Front, and keep in mind too that more casualties from Mel in one night on the Western Front than an entire eight months of Gallipoli. You know, the Western Front is this huge mincemeat in many ways of, of modern warfare. It, It's devastating. After the war, the nation emerges very much in sort of grief and mourning. There were two plebiscites to do with conscription for overseas service. Incredibly divisive on the Australian home front. Very much fought along sectarian lines, so Catholics versus Protestants. Uh, as well as class too, as middle class versus the working class, so incredibly divisive. The country is a nation in mourning, and you think, well, what was the cost? What was the point of it? Well, the last thing thing that was legacy was this sense of Australian Australian values. We were were tested, we were found not to be wanting, and in fact on the battlefield, particularly during 1917 and 1918, the AIF performed outstandingly well. So I think that's part of the bedrock of the basis for um, what we would now look back on as part of that Australian values. And also, too, it's changed over time. So it was quite an important part of the Australian story post-First World War. But then it's not really picked up again from mass way until about the 1980s. So you have this looking back uh, and a sense of nostalgia as well, I suspect.
0: Coming back to British war correspondent Ellis Ashmead Bartlett, he had quite a romanticised account of Australians on the shore that morning and didn't exactly match up with the writings of Charles Bean, you could say. Why do you think he described Australians that way in his initial reporting?
1: Well, his dispatch wasn't really for Australian consumption. Uh, He was writing sort of quite famously now. Um, He wasn't on the front line. I mean, they weren't able to send war correspondents, weren't able to land or be embedded, that way we would now describe them. And he was really writing for home, writing for the British public um, to support them to say, look, our colonials, are uh, as good as the British soldiers and an element of, of a good news story too. And I think as the campaign went on, ashmead Bartlett, as well as Charles Bean, a, a cynicism that grows within the dispatches. In many ways, Bean was always more of a historian than a journalist. So Bean was appointed as our first official war correspondent. But his dispatches are actually pretty bland, They don't have a lot of colour uh, and he was very much driven by the facts and that's why he had problems with censorship and also too why um, his reports weren't as widely picked up or circulated because he wrote bland copy. (laughs) Um, Whereas Ellis Ashmi Bartlett just has such colour it comes from his pen it's much easier to read but anyway as, as the campaign goes on and evolves the casualties mount there's frustration there's a lack of progress the you know the rations for example the poor rations set in the miserable conditions there's that sense of frustration about pointlessness what are we achieving men are dying for what it's not helping win the war any faster the strategy of trying to clear the dardanelles to get through to constantinople clearly isn't working, and so at what point, but yet it seemed to be just reinforcing failure, particularly after York's defensive. So we have things such as Lone Pine in the Neck and the landing at Cape Helles. Um, when the objectives aren't achieved, why are we still here? Or why are they still there?
0: And I think the colourful account, it gripped the nation when it was first reported. Going forward to our national psyche today, how much do you think that has impacted on our national values now as opposed to how it was initially welcomed at the time?
1: It's an interesting question. I think a lot depends on who you ask. Australia of 1915 is incredibly different to Australia of 2018 in terms of our values, our attributes, our sense of identity. I think there is that sense of nostalgia of looking back, of how we like to see ourselves. No, there's a myth of us always punching above our weight, which is a myth. But it's the same type of language you see our national sporting teams describe in cricket, rugby union, rugby league. It's just really, I think, an imagined way for us to look back and how we see ourselves, and yeah, they do pick out those good values, particularly a sense of mateship and sacrifice. You no, know, but also this uh, view that we're egalitarian, that we're all we're all mates, and it's more the way to define us against the British, particularly in that context of 1915 and post First World War. There, there is something uniquely distinctive about Australian, despite the fact that most people were of British ancestry. About a third of the first AIF was actually born in Britain. We have the same language, the same values largely the same religion, it was a sense for us to bring out and to play out our difference, which is why I think it really made a big comeback into the 80s and also in the 1990s when you had that Republican debate. And this is really where Kokoda becomes much more part of the story because it's that is a sense of an Australianness as opposed to a sort of shared British-Australian values. Gallipoli and then also Kokoda have a much stronger sense of Australianness to distinguish ourselves from our allies and really our family.
0: I'd always pick Lone Pine as an example of us punching above our weight. Why is that a myth?
1: Well, basically, because. um, In a broader sense, as well as Lone Pine, I mean. Oh, it's just how we like to talk about ourselves and punching above our weight. Whereas, really, we deploy a force that is arranged in a normal British conventional force, part of the British Army. On Gallipoli, Australian officers are as good as killing our men as British soldiers are. So in the movie, in Peter Weir's Gallipoli, for example, there's a, a British officer who basically orders a charge to go ahead. In reality, that was an Australian officer. So we're just sort of playing to the stereotypes. And I think we always do like to say, hey, we punch up at our weight. But that's mainly because we tend to deploy, post-Second World War, we've always tended to deploy small forces. So in Vietnam, it was a task force of two battalions and later on three battalions. And even in Iraq and Afghanistan, particularly in Afghanistan, while we are the third largest force beyond Britain and the United States, we're still only talking about hundreds of men, or hundreds of soldiers, uh, men and women, I should say. We're not a major player. In
0: 1916, the Anzacs moved from Gallipoli to France and their actions on the Western Front and the casualties dwarf anything that happened on Turkish shores. But Gallipoli is still at the core of our national narrative, not the Western Front. Why do you think that is?
1: I think Gallipoli is an easier story. A range of different reasons for answering that question. Gallipoli itself, you yeah, have the physicality of the peninsula. You can go there today, it's accessible, so you can visit Anzac Cove and North Beach, you can look up and see the Sphinx. The terrain roughly still looks the same. So it's that physicality. You can imagine what it would be like to climb up those cliffs and to sit in the trenches at Lone Pine, you go to the Neck, and at Lone Pine, you can sort of look across the cemetery and think, okay, this is the vista of the battlefield. The cemetery itself is pretty much represents the, the Turkish lines and the Australian lines. So you have the physicality of the campaign. Gallipoli is a simple story to understand as well. We arrive on the 25th of April. It's a big Turkish counterattack in May. It's killed a lot of casualties. You have uh, the August offensive doesn't go anywhere, and then by the end of the year we pull back. Once you move into the Western Front, the rationale becomes much harder to understand. What is the the different phases from the Third Battle of Ypres, for example, in October or September, October 1917? Because you have Passchendaele, Bruncendel Ridge. It, it just becomes uh, the story is much more confused, and the way and rather than the Gallipoli, where basically all these strains are together. On the Western Front, you have different divisions rotating in at different times. They're part of different uh, larger formations. So you don't always get the same sort of a commonality of experience in terms of battles, although the experience of being bombed and shelled and blown up and gassed is somewhat universal. So I think it's the advantage of Gallipoli. It's the physicality of the campaign. It's the first. Again, keep in mind it's, that's why it's attractive because it's the first major event of the war. And um, it's an easy story. Everything has a place in Gallipoli. Every plateau, every knoll, every corner, you can name it, identify it, you can link it back to a person. Once you get into the vastness of the Western Front, uh, you lose that sense of it's no longer intimate. You know, the battlefield itself goes for hundreds of kilometres at times, massive fronts during the Third Battle of Ypres and the Battle of Somme. And it just, the sense of the individual is lost, I think, in that mass, mass conflict.
0: The Anzac legend continues a generation later Japan enters World War II on 7 December 1941 and advanced rapidly towards Australia in 1942. But before we get to Kokoda, looking back with the benefit of hindsight, were the Japanese actually planning on invading Australia?
1: No, what we now know is the Japanese had no um, concrete plans to invade mainland Australia. Uh, certainly in those first few months of 1942, a darkest year, the Japanese smashed through Southeast Asia and the Pacific, so they captured Rabao in January. So Rabaul, part of Australia's mandated territory. Um, Singapore falls in February. The Netherlands, East Indies, so modern-day Indonesia, collapses during February and March. And uh, and then there too, only four days after the fall of Singapore, so on the 19th, uh, Darwin is bombed for the first time. So within about six weeks, you know, six or two-and-a-half months, the Japanese have gone from Japan all the way down to Australian shores. So understandably, there's a lot of um, fear, concern, a little bit of paranoia, um, worrying about where will the Japanese stop. Uh, And the Japanese, there was a plan from elements within the Japanese army of looking towards uh, invading mainland Australia or making an attack on mainland Australia. The Japanese Navy though really knocked that out very quickly. From the Japanese Navy's point of view, they realised they didn't have enough ships to supply an invasion force or to maintain an invasion force. It's one thing to get troops to a foreign shore, but you still need to supply them. And the bulk of the Japanese army was always deployed in China anyway. So it was floated briefly during that phase of, um, they call it victory disease, when the Japanese themselves surprised at their own success. But it was ruled out very, very quickly. So while Australian um, territory was occupied, say New Guinea as well as Papua, there was never any concrete plans to invade mainland Australia. It's an understandable
0: fear and concern at the time, though, and that does bring us to another key pillar of Australian history and our national character, Kokoda. Why do you think Kokoda has this enduring resonance?
1: Again, like Ellipoli, it's a physicality. People have heard of the Owen Stanley Range. You can go there today. You can walk the Kokoda Trail or the Kokoda Track depending on your preference. It's easy to do. You have incredibly powerful visual images from the film Kokoda Front Line. So you see the men in the rain, in the mud, trying to push through the, the mountainous terrain. It is a simple narrative, much like Gallipoli. The Japanese land on the north coast of Papua in late July. We've across the Owen Stanley Range. By mid-September, they're forced to fall back. And then, so the second half is us pushing the Japanese back across the mountains. Pretty simple narrative physicality of the terrain, the powerful visual images, and again, too, the idea of courage, endurance, mateship, sacrifice, those values that are inscribed in the Memorial of Disarava have become so closely connected with Australian values, it gives a greater meaning to it. And also keep in mind, too, it's a very, very strong Australian story. You have Australian soldiers fighting on Australian territory, fighting to stop the Japanese, which the soldiers thought may be invading the Australian mainland. So if you don't stop the Japanese at Kokoda, or Isarava, or Brigade Hill, or Port Moresby, then we are going to stop the Japanese? So it's uh, Kokoda is incredibly strong with that sense of Australianness. And unusually, too, it's one of those only times when Australian soldiers are fighting the Japanese so the Americans don't take part in the battle and the higher conduct of the campaign is um, being run by Australian commanders. So we have that neat little Australian story. Australian soldiers on Australian territory, under Australian command, fighting just by themselves against the Japanese invader. That's a bit of a contrast
0: to Gallipoli where it was more international effort.
1: Oh, Absolutely. And I think, and this is why Kokoda has... I think has had a longer residence than say Tobruk or even El Alamein, which were probably more decisive battles in the scheme of the war, certainly in their respective theaters. I mean, Kokoda is a fringe of a fringe campaign in many ways in the the Pacific. Where the war in the Pacific would be decisive turned out to be in the central Pacific with the US Navy and US Marines. El Alamein. Alamein is a huge turning point in the war in 1942, but there the Australian 9th Division is part of a much larger coalition force. So there's New Zealand Division, Rhodesian South Africans, uh, as well as the British Army. So the Australian part of the story is much harder to pull out, whereas at Kokoda, it's pretty much just us. And likewise at Gallipoli. So it is a coalition force, but the Australian element is, is stronger.
0: And how did that fighting at Kokoda compare to the Solomon Islands, Borneo, Philippines?
1: It really varies over time. So in many ways, particularly during the early part of the campaign, is Force, so the Third Battalion, and then later on Twenty One Brigade, vicious at times, quite vicious hand to hand fighting. The Australian soldiers don't have heavy weapons, so they didn't bring up their mortars or their medium machine guns. It's really just your three hundred three rifle, your bayonet, your entrenching tool, your helmet, and then your light machine gun, such as your Tommy gun. That's pretty much about it. In the latter part of the war, the soldiers deploy with their heavy weapons. So you have, um, and some battalion level heavy weapons, so your two and your three inch mortars, your Bickers medium machine gun, plus all the other assets such as artillery, tanks, aircraft, airstrikes, all those other um, tools of modern warfare that you would see and recognize. So, for example, Kokoda is incredibly different to the fighting in, say, Borneo in 1945, for example, at, during the Oboe operations, where the Allies have overwhelming air and sea firepower and just annihilate the Japanese in the invasion beaches of Ballypapan, whereas at Kokoda, you know, two and a half years earlier, we're really just scrounging and just fighting with our bare hands at times, particularly at places such as Isaraba. What
0: are the parallels you see between Gallipoli and Kokoda then?
1: I think in many ways what has endured has become that sense of Australian values, the shared values. The universal experience of men sticking together with their mates, of them hanging out and enduring amongst the conditions. So despite the because, okay, Kokoda it's wet all the time, it rains all the time, there's very little food, not a lot of variety in their dietary needs. They're um, sick, they're run down, they're exhausted physically and mentally. Even if you're not fighting the Japanese actively in battles, there's constant patrolling. And while you may not have a contact, if you're out sort of beyond the wire, the Japanese could be around the bend at any turn. Like you don't know, it's dark. You can't see in front of you that constant stress plays on your mind take it back uh, 25 years earlier to gallipoli again they're on the peninsula it's hot the food is incredibly poor sickness and disease run rampant uh, yet despite that the strains of gallipoli they're hanging on you know they haven't given up they're exhausted they're fatigued but they're still hanging in there so there's those values which i think are universal almost a commonality of misery uh, despite the physical conditions it's still at gallipoli they're being bombed and shelled constantly Everywhere within the Gallipoli Peninsula came under um, Turkish sort of fire. There was no safe places. A little bit like in the jungle because if you get lost and if you're off the track, you're there by yourself. So there's a the constant, constant sort of threat and constant menace. So, so it the physicality is similar, but more so I think it is the values that have proved to be enduring and that strong sense of an Australian recognisably Australian sense of self um, that I think we couldn't all aspire to, which is why uh, Gallipoli and Kokoda have both endured. The romanticism
0: and tragedy of the narratives and the Australianness of them, it's why they resonate still with us today.
1: Uh, both of them are great stories. At the end of the day, even if you take out the the nationalism or the patriotism, they're cracking yarns of guys who just sit there and they're doing their best and they hang on. And through that adversity, they kind of establish something that's bigger than themselves. And Carl, you've written a book on this topic too, Kokoda, Beyond the Legend. Oh, thank you for the plug. Uh, yes, we do. So this is Kokoda. Uh, it's an edited volume, and it really looks about putting the story of Kokoda and the Papuan campaigns in 1942 into a much larger perspective. Now, while I've said Kokoda is a cracking yarn, and it certainly is, There's lots of, I mean, there's been lots of books about Kokoda, but often it's about individual uh, soldiers or it's about people talking about the same types of things. There's not a lot of new sort of discoveries. And what we did with Kokoda Beyond the Legend, it was to put... Oh, the other thing too, it's really easy to be parochial. While I'm talking about Australian values today, we can't always just talk about Australian stories to Australians all the time. We need to put ourselves into a wider context because I think then we get a greater understanding and a greater appreciation of, okay, why are we fighting a Kokoda? Okay, what is the importance? What's the Japanese experience? What are the Japanese soldiers doing? How do we get to Kokoda? What are the Americans doing? We can't just keep telling the same type of stories to ourselves all the time. So with Kokoda Beyond the Legend, we uh, have together a team of authors really to put Kokoda into that wider context of the war in 1942. Uh, so we also have a contribution from Sir Anthony Beaver. He's talking about the big picture of the war in 1942. Richard Frank, who's an American historian who has he's pretty much the expert on Guadalcanal. Canal, because Guadalcanal and Kokoda are actually connected in parallel. So from the Japanese, they're based in Rabao. During one axis, they're looking towards Port Moresby across the Island Stanleys. And then another axis of the Japanese advance is looking down the Solomon Island chain to Guadalcanal. Both of them are important from the Japanese perspective, but we only ever talk about Kokoda. Um, we don't really engage the debate with Guadalcanal. The reason they're connected is because the Japanese take their reverses at Guadalcanal in August. It's because the Japanese are losing the Guadalcanal and they think that Guadalcanal and Solomon's are more important. They then order the commander on the ground at Kokoda, General Hori, to fall back. So we don't actually push the Japanese back across the Owen Stanley's. Hori is ordered to withdraw because of the reverses at Guadalcanal, and the Australians then pursue Hori and the South Seas force back across the mountains. That connection between Kokoda and Guadalcanal is often lost. So we wanted in this volume to to bring that together, as well as really look at the Japanese much more and delve much deeper into the Japanese story. So we have chapters looking at the the command structure within the Japanese hierarchy of Hori's relationship with his battalion and regimental commanders, because they were as fractured as the Australian commanders were, and also just get a better sense of who are the Japanese soldiers. Like, who were the men from the 144th Regiment? What was their prefecture they came from? What was their training? You know, they've been called up. Basically, it's a farming society, and they're called up in the 1930s, in early 1940s, to become soldiers. They're not the elite. Um, which people often describe them. They're conscripted soldiers, but they just had a little bit more combat experience than the Australians. Well, some of the Australians, mainly the 39th Battalion. So it's a really timely to look at this battle, which everyone knows the name of Kokoda, but to look at it in more detail and to put it into that bigger part of the story into a global context.
0: Well, Carl, I'm happy to plug it because it sounds like a great read.
1: Cracking read.
0: You've uh, given us a lot to think about in terms of our Australian character and values and how we fit our own history into our own sense of self with Anzac Day right around the corner. Thanks for your time today. That was my conversation with Dr. Carl James on the enduring resonance of Gallipoli and Kokoda. Thomas Kay interviewed Carl last year in Season 1 on the history of Australia's Special Forces, so do check that episode out if you missed it. Carl also participated in our World War II documentary, For School and Country. Find out more about that at forschoolandcountry.com. Life on the Line will be keeping busy this Anzac Day. Follow our adventures on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Life on the Line Podcast and on Twitter at L-O-T-L-Pod. Our website is www.lifeonthelinepodcast.com and you can email us at podcast at lifeonthelinepodcast.com. Life on the Line is brought to you by Thistle Productions. Artwork by Big Cat Design. Music by Dan Van Workhoven. Thanks for listening, and lest
1: we forget...